This is a Rooster Teeth production. November 28, 1979. Air New Zealand Flight 901, a McDonnell Douglas DC-10, is on a very unique flight. The flight is a sightseeing tour based out of New Zealand that takes passengers over Antarctica. 237 passengers and 20 crew members are on board, all eager to get a look at one of the most remote places on Earth. The weather is not ideal for sightseeing as there are low clouds, so the pilots descend to 1,500 feet to let the passengers get the views that they expect. Once below the clouds, the passengers can clearly see and photograph landmarks 13 miles to their left and 10 miles to their right. Without warning, the ground proximity warning activates, alerting pilots they're at 500 feet altitude, quickly followed by a warning indicating they're at 400 feet. The pilots apply power to their engines, but it's too late. The plane slams into the side of Mount Erebus, killing all on board. How does a plane fly into a mountain in one of the most remote locations on Earth? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hey everyone, welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. We're here. We're back. Hey, Chris. Hello. I want to hear about Antarctica. Jesus, man. In another podcast that we do, I've gotten into an argument with someone over how you pronounce it. How do you say that continent's name? Antarctica. Now I'm second guessing myself. Right. <laughs> someone made fun of me because I normally say Antarctica. So now I'm like super paranoid about it, about whether it's Antarctica or Antarctica. Antarctica. I think the CT is at the second end. Even when I was reading the introductory paragraph, I was like freaking myself out in my head. I was like, how do I say it? Which one do I go with? <laughs> well, I'm sure the internet will let us know. Right. That's why I'm bringing it up now <laughs> so that everyone listening can now in their minds try to say that word and try to figure out how it is that they say it and what they think the correct way to pronounce it is. So I'm probably going to be saying Antarctica this whole episode, okay. despite the fact I said Antarctica in the intro. Anyway, uh, <laughs> So before we get uh, into the, uh, the the main part of this podcast, I want to remind everyone that they can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at BlackBoxDownPod. Uh, we post images and videos and stuff that we can't normally uh, convey in an audio-only podcast. If you want a little supplemental material, uh, go check it out. I, I highly encourage it. Okay, so we have uh, an incident in maybe the most remote place we've covered so far in, in Antarctica. Yeah. Not, not a place you typically imagine a commercial plane crash would happen, right? Yeah, I didn't even know that that type of plane tour thing existed. Yeah, I mean, it, it. this was a relatively new thing. I'm going off the top of my head here. I want to say that they had just started doing this uh, a year and a half or two years before in 1977. Mm -hmm. And after this crash, they suspended it for a long time. And I think they only started doing it in a very limited fashion again, maybe back in, I want to say like maybe 2013. I think maybe Qantas started up some flights like this. Mm. It is something I think that they still do on occasion, but it's rare and they had stopped for a couple of decades after this incident. Yeah. For reasons that we're, we're going to get into um, <laughs> in this episode. Like I said, the, the weather was not great and uh, visibility was low, but they flew under the clouds to the point where visibility was fine and they could see in every direction, but they still managed to fly into a mountain without realizing it. You say the weather wasn't good. I mean, snowstorm, like what does that mean exactly? Right. Yeah. Uh, windy, snowstorms, lots of cloud cover in particular, which was the what they were trying to get around. You know, the clouds, they're flying over Antarctica. They want to see it. Uh, the cloud cover was so thick that they couldn't see it. So they had to fly lower than expected. Uh, again, we're going to dig into all of this here in just a bit. I'm kind of giving you a little preview. Okay. Like I said, Air New Zealand 901 was a sightseeing flight on November 28th, 1979. The plane was to depart from Auckland International Airport, supposed to go fly over Antarctica for a few hours. Then on the way back, it was going to stop in Christchurch, refuel, and then continue on to Auckland. This sort of flight typically lasted about 11 hours or so. 
And uh, in today's money, it would cost about 1300 New Zealand dollars, which is a little more than 900 US dollars. And they're just flying just to go see it and then back, pretty much. Exactly. They're, they're not landing in there. They're just going to go take a look and wave at a penguin, whatever yeah. it is you do when you fly down there, <laughs> which, which I think is kind of cool, right? I mean... The idea of it, yeah. Yeah. Do you get to see Antarctica? It's crazy. So the flight was crewed by Captain Thomas James Collins, who had 11,151 flight hours, First Officer Gregory Mark Casson, who had 7,934 flight hours, and Flight Engineer Gordon Barrett Brooks, who had a total of 10,886 flight hours. There was another flight engineer who switched out with Brooks around the time of the incident, and he remained on the flight deck, and his name was Nicholas John Maloney, and he had 6,468 flight hours. There was also another First Officer on board, but he was not involved with this incident. His name was Graham uh, Neville Lucas. And there were a total of 15 other crew members on board and 237 passengers. So total of 257 people. So quite a few people. Yeah. If you remember, uh, we've talked about the DC-10 in the past. It's a dual-aisle airliner. So it's a a big plane. You would normally see it used in uh, transoceanic flights. Which this was, right? I mean, it was doing Antarctic. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right, exactly. And uh, this plane in particular had a little more than 20,700 hours of flight time. So out of all of those crew members... um, only the flight engineer had been to on this flight before. Uh, the captain, the first officer, had never actually flown this route before. But they were more than qualified to do this, and you know they were very experienced pilots. So in preparation for this flight, Captain Collins and First Officer Kasten attended a flight briefing on November 9th, which is 19 days before the flight. Okay. The briefing consisted of an audiovisual presentation, a review of a printed briefing sheet, and a 45-minute flight in a simulator for each pilot to familiarize themselves with the navigation procedures for the portion of the flight that takes place south of the 60-degree latitudinal line. They're just kind of going over it. The, the, the flight's a little different. We're going to get into some of the, the differences uh, that they experience on this flight. I don't quite mm-hmm. fully understand all of it, but I'm going to do my best <laughs> to explain what I do understand about it. Okay. So the briefing gave details on the instrument flight rules route to McMurdo Station, which is a U.S. research station in Antarctica. The route passed almost directly over the active volcano Mount Erebus, which peaks at 12,450 feet and is about 20 nautical miles north of the most southern portion of the flight. The briefing also stated that the minimum instrument meteorological conditions altitude was 16,000 feet, and once they passed overhead at McMurdo, the minimum altitude was 6,000 feet, providing that conditions were better than a certain criteria that would allow them to fly that low. So basically, the flight path said, stay at 16,000 feet unless the weather's good, then you can go down to 6,000 feet. Mm, okay. Uh, real fast, this is an acronym that's going to come up quite a bit uh, in this episode. Instrument Meteorological Conditions, or IMC. So if you hear me say IMC, it's Instrument Meteorological Conditions, and that's just the weather. Think of it that way. It's just if the weather's good or not. If they can't see outside their windows and they're flying in clouds, they cannot fly below that specified altitude. I'm going to guess they didn't follow those rules, but that's just... <laughs> <laughs> right. If you remember what I said earlier in the introduction, it was they flew down to 1,500 feet. So a little spoiler there. They were uh, uh, lower than the flight plan said they should have been. The area of Antarctica that McMurdo Station and Mount Erebus is on is known as Ross Island. So while approaching this area, the McMurdo Meteorological Office informed the crew that Ross Island was under a low overcast with a base of 2,000 feet with light snow, 40-mile visibility, and clear areas approximately 75 to 100 nautical miles northwest of McMurdo. So basically they're saying, hey, a little snowy, kind of cloudy, but it's clear under those clouds here, but the weather's better northwest of here. Okay. About 25 minutes later, the crew was informed by Scott Base, which is a, a New Zealand Antarctic research station, 
that the Dry Valley area was clear and it would be a better prospect for sightseeing than Ross Island. Then Scott Base is only a couple miles away from McMurdo. And that dry valley they're talking about is about 40 miles or so west of Ross Island. Huh. I didn't know there were that many bases and people staying on Antarctica at any given time. There's quite a few. Um, I don't, I, I mean, I'm not an expert on it. I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. But I mean, especially in this case, I think, you know, they know that the plane's coming. So people are yeah. listening for it and, you know, on the lookout. Captain Collins asked if he could be guided over towards Scott Base. And, uh, you know, they were told it would be no trouble. And, you know, they asked, hey, do you want to come in this direction? And Captain Collins replied that he would prefer here first. So Captain Collins was aware Scott Base was available, but he wanted to try McMurdo first because that's where they were supposed to be going. Yeah. So the U.S. Navy Air Traffic Control in McMurdo, referred to as Max Center, suggested that the aircraft crew take advantage of the surveillance radar to descend to 1,500 feet during the approach to McMurdo. And the crew accepted that offer. Uh, however, the aircraft was not located by radar equipment prior to the initiation of descent, and it was not picked up for the remainder of the flight. The crew also started to experience difficulty in their attempts to make contact on the very high-frequency radio telephone, and they could not get a lock on the McMurdo beacon with their distance measuring equipment. The aircraft was relying on its high-frequency radio telephone for the latter part of its flight for communication with air traffic control. So I do want to clarify something here uh, real fast. I just want to touch on this. The kind of beacon that they're using at this point is called a TACAN. It's short for Tactical Air Navigation System, and it's typically only used by military aircraft. Uh, it provides uh, the user with a bearing and a distance to a ground or ship station and is more accurate th than the civilian uh, VOR system. You know, we've talked about VOR in the past, and that's normally what they would be. VOR and NDB would probably be what they'd be using at the time. Uh, but because they're over in Antarctica, you know, and they're using Navy air traffic control, they're using this TACAN instead. Okay. So there was an area that was approved for visual meteorological condition descents below 16,000 feet, but this area was obscured by clouds, so the crew decided to descend in a clear area north of Ross Island. They descended in two orbits, one to the right and then to the left. So basically they, they descend and they start doing figure eights, is basically what it boils down to. That way people can look out the windows and they can see this is the sightseeing portion of yeah. the trip. Um, it seems like instead of following traditional compass directions, they're following degrees on a grid. And this is a part I don't exactly understand, uh -huh. but the directions that they're given in this flight are referred to as a grid. My speculation, and I don't know this for a fact, my speculation is they're so close to a polar region that compass headings become a little wonky. So they probably broke it down into grids. Oh. That way they knew where they were. Huh. Pure speculation on my part there. That sounds like it might be right. I don't know. It the idea of traveling and navigating to Antarctic, Antarctica. Sorry, now I'm. See, you, you're messed up now too, yeah. aren't you? <laughs> I know. Now I'm second guessing it. The idea, it just sounds like traveling to the moon or something. It's it's, it's like another planet almost in my head. I, mean, I think that's kind of the difficult part of this episode. Is you know normally when we talk about incidents, I can talk about oh it was close to this town or it was close to that town or it was in this country or this state, and people kind of maybe have a frame of reference in their mind like okay I know what that is. I'm talking about research stations and bases and mountains that people have probably haven't heard about before. It's yeah. uh, it's it, it's like an alien land. We did a little video a few months ago where we went on vacation uh, sightseeing and flight sim. Funny enough, remember? Yeah. And I was like, let's go visit the North Pole to see Santa's uh, house. And we, we took flight sim to the North Pole and it was it just broke. Yeah, the, the game wasn't quite sure how to render it. It, it didn't work right. And I guess that's where everything gets comes together. Basically, everything gets stitched together in the world. Yeah, and it's just it, and there's not a lot of data, and the game was like, "What? Why are you flying here? This doesn't make <laughs> sense." And if you remember, I think in that uh, video we did, I think the compass was also going wonky at the time. Yeah. So 
The crew was given permission from Max Henner to descend from 10,000 feet to 2,000 feet on a heading of 180 grid and proceed visually to McMurdo. However, the aircraft descended to 8,600 feet and turned to a heading of 375 degrees grid. And on this heading, it descended to 5,700 feet. The aircraft then descended to 1,500 feet on the flight plan track back toward Ross Island. Shortly after reaching 1,500 feet, the aircraft's ground proximity warning system sounded and the engineer called out 500 feet, 400 feet. The captain called for a go-round power and pulled back on the controls to climb, but it was too late. Uh, The aircraft collided in Mount Erebus at 1,467 feet in daylight hours. The aircraft broke apart and a fire ignited on impact and continued to burn in the cabin after the parts came to a rest. And the aircraft was destroyed and all 257 people on board were killed. So how long did they have before they realized they were in trouble? It was seconds. It was not very long at all. I mean, from the time the ground proximity warning goes off to the time the impact was only a couple of seconds. Oh, so they were just like, all right, we're flying around. Yeah, I mean, they had enough time to give go-around power on the throttle and to start pulling back, and then they impacted. So, yeah, it was just like nothing. They were just like sightseeing, sightseeing, and then dead. Right. I've seen speculation from some other aviation experts who studied this crash that say if they had realized even 10 seconds earlier what was going on, and started their procedure at that point, that they could have uh, gone over the mountain and survived this. They just not know the mountain was there? Is that what? Right. You got to wonder what's going on at this point. Uh, yeah. That, that they hit a mountain in daylight hours uh, when visibility is okay. Like I said, passengers could see 13 miles to one side of the plane and 10 miles to the other. Uh, how did they hit this mountain? Yeah, they were sightseeing and they didn't see the biggest sight. <laughs> right. And, you know, how did they get to this point when their flight plan should have alerted them to this. Yeah. So, I mean, these are all the questions everyone wants to know. There's 257 people dead because of this. What happened? And what can you do to prevent this from happening again? So the investigation was carried out by the Transport Accident Investigation Commission of New Zealand. Uh, One of the things they looked at was the flight briefing that occurred on November 9th and the flight plan that was used. And after examining the briefing, they found that some significant items were not included. The briefing did not include topographical maps to use during the flight until the morning of the flight, Uh, when the crew received a small-scale map of Ross Island. The briefing did not include information on how their planned route was different from the normal military route, which follows NAV waypoints. The briefing did not include information on the authority of the U.S. Navy's air traffic control system to control the flight. The briefing did not include a comprehensive discussion of the dangers of the whiteout phenomenon. So a whiteout is an atmospheric effect which results in the loss of depth perception and is especially common in polar regions where there's snow cover. And there's only two conditions that are necessary to produce a whiteout. A diffuse, shadowless illumination and a monocolored white surface. So a whiteout doesn't necessarily mean that there's heavy precipitation or fog or haze. A whiteout can occur in a crystal clear atmosphere or under a cloud ceiling with ample, comfortable light and an individual field filled with trees, huts, oil drums or other small objects. So basically what I'm getting at here is... Since they were in a whiteout and they didn't know it Uh because the terrain is all white, you know, there's snow, there's really nothing. It's all kind of flat to their perspective. Yeah. They didn't see the mountain. So it just blends into the... It just blended into everything else. They thought, if I'm remembering correctly, they actually did see the mountain, but they thought it was further away on the other side of a bay. Oh my God. They thought that there was an ice shelf and that there 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 were quite a ways away, but because everything was so flattened out because of the white environment... It was actually right in front of them. It was like a weird optical illusion. That's crazy. They did not receive any notification. This this kind of thing happens down there. And like I said, this was the first time for this pilot and this first officer to be flying in Antarctica. Yeah. How fast were they going? 
cruising speeds. So they were going uh, a couple hundred miles an hour. Off the top of my head, I want to say that they impacted the side of Mount Erebus around 350 miles an hour. Okay, so yeah, they're they're going fast. So it's not it's not like they have a lot of time to react to stuff anyway, even if they did see it. Yeah. And their briefing uh, that they received also did not contain information on what to do if there was a need for an emergency landing on ice or the most effective methods of survival on ice in the event of a successful forced landing, which not something you want to do, but in case you have to, you want to know what you have to do in those situations, right? You want to make sure all your bases are covered. Yeah. So I read, you know, things that were deficient. Uh, and obviously the whiteout was a, a huge contributing factor in this incident. But there's something else here that uh, I haven't said yet. Okay. There was a problem with the flight plan that they received. The computer flight plan used at the briefing that they had attended had an error in it for 14 months. And no one had caught it. It showed the destination point for McMurdo to be two degrees west of where it actually was, which would put the flight over McMurdo Sound. But due to a typing error, the printout from the Air New Zealand's ground computer showed the path to fly over the McMurdo Sound, not over Mount Erebus. And the majority of the previous 13 flights flew over McMurdo Sound, unaware that they were in the wrong spot. The error was actually found by Captain Leslie Simpson, who had flown this flight on November 14th. And Simpson was also at that briefing on November 9th. And when he pointed out that there was an error in the flight path, the error was corrected in the ground computer, but not until the day before this flight, and the crew was not told of the correction. So they saw the error, they corrected it, but... They didn't tell the crew. They didn't tell the crew, but did the printouts that they were reading, did they have the wrong, ma- I guess, printouts in the, in, in the cockpit? That's actually a really good question. So what happened was they were shown a copy of the wrong flight plan during that briefing, but the flight plan they were given on the day of the flight had the correct coordinates, and they were not aware of the changes made. So what happened was they thought they were flying west of where they actually were. They thought they were flying out west over the sound, which would have been fine. But this new flight plan put them directly over the mountain. Huh. The wrong route also aligned them with the military route. And it's possible the U.S. Navy was looking in the wrong spot for this flight when they tried to find them on the radar. Remember, I said they couldn't find them earlier. Yeah. So I'll post this on our, like I said, on our social media. You can see on the map. If they had gone on the wrong flight plan, which every other flight had done, they would have been fine. They would have avoided the mountain. They would have been like 27 miles west of the mountain. But because the flight plan was changed and corrected, it put them directly in the path of the mountain. Okay. So they were on the right flight plan. Correct. But they didn't know that. They didn't know it changed. They thought they were on the wrong one, thinking that that was the right one. Oh, that's so confusing. But yeah, I get it. Right. (laughs) This was the first flight that had been given the correct flight plan and no one had told them. God. Yeah, it's a little confusing, uh, but hopefully that comes across. And if not, you can yeah. check out our social media and we'll post a map that shows the two uh, flight plans. We've got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode. It's the Jordan Harbinger Show, which is a podcast you really should be listening to. And I know every day somebody tells you you just have to listen to some podcast. You nod, you say, sure, and you never listen to it. Don't let that happen here. Jordan Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker, so you get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Each episode is a conversation with a different fascinating guest. When I say there's something for everyone here, I really mean it. In one episode, Jordan talks to a hostage negotiator for the FBI who offers techniques on how to get people to like and trust you, which is both useful and disturbing at the same time. Another episode tells the story of a cinematographer who discovered a lost city in the jungle and made one of the most important archaeological finds of the century. He's got a couple of other uh, recent episodes. He talked with Matthew McConaughey. Uh, Another episode, he talks with Danny Trejo, both of whom I'm sure you recognize from countless movies uh, and TV shows. 
Jordan's always focused on pulling useful, practical insights out of his brilliant guests. We're not talking about pop psychology or wishy-washy self-help stuff here. The episodes are loaded with bits of wisdom you can use to legitimately change your mind and improve your life right away. And if that's not worth checking out, I'm not sure what is. So we really enjoy the show. We think you will as well. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check it out. This episode of Black Box Down is brought to you by Honey. So what is Honey? Well, it's a free browser extension that scours the internet for promo codes and automatically tests them when you're checking out and buying stuff online. You know, it feels like online shopping is really the only thing we do nowadays. It's a safe way to get everything you need. Uh, That's where Honey comes in. It's basically your online shopping best friend. Well, here's how it works. So you get Honey on your computer for free. It's just two easy clicks. Then when you're checking out one of its over 30,000 supported sites, Honey pops up and all you have to do is click apply coupons. You just wait a couple seconds as Honey searches for coupons for that specific site. And if Honey finds working codes, it'll automatically apply the best one to your cart. Honey has found its over 17 million members, over $2 billion in savings. Honey supports all kinds of retailers from tech and gaming sites to fashion brands, even food delivery. Use it all the time. You get on Amazon, get on Target, uh, tons of stuff that you probably shop already. Uh, Honey already works with. So it's simple. If you have a computer, Honey should absolutely be on it. It's free, works with whatever browser you use. You can get Honey for free today at joinhoney.com slash blackboxdown. That's joinhoney.com slash blackboxdown so they know we sent you. So thanks, Honey, for supporting today's episode. Okay, so there were some things that were found by the investigation group. The flight planned route entered in the company's base computer was varied after the crew's briefing in that the position for McMurdo on the computer printout used at the briefing was incorrect by over two degrees of longitude and was subsequently corrected prior to this flight. So like I said, the wrong flight plan was supposed to take them further west, but it was corrected and it took them a little two degrees east. Okay. The system of checking the detailed flight plan entries into the base computer was inadequate in that an error of two degrees of longitude persisted in a flight plan for some 14 months. Like I said, this wasn't just some error that popped up. It had been wrong for over a year and no one noticed. And then when they did notice, they didn't tell the crew. Yeah, I guess it didn't matter to everyone else because they were above the mountain or or, or away from the mountain. Right, they were further west in the mountain, so it didn't matter, which is why, and I I haven't even touched on this yet, all the other flights would get really low to give the passengers a, a good view of Antarctica. So this captain, this was his first time there, he knew that the other captains had gotten really low and were fine, so he wanted to do the same thing. He wanted to give the passengers what they paid for. Yeah, which is like, oh yeah, you get down to this altitude and they and it's good. And so, right, damn. But every other plane had flown further west from the mountain. They were right over it. But it sounds like that would have been the better flight path anyway. If it, if it's, it's just to avoid a mountain, right? The incorrect one sounds better. Right. You would think you would want to avoid a mountain, but uh, that's that's neither here nor there. Some diagrams and maps issued at the route qualification briefing could have been misleading in that they depicted a track which passed to the true west of Ross Island over a sea-level ice shelf, whereas the flight plan track passed to the east over high ground reaching to 12,450 feet. So it's like what I said. All the other flights had gone to the west over a sea-level ice shelf, but in reality, they were this flight, they were flying over a volcano. Yeah. The briefing conducted by Air New Zealand Limited contained omissions and inaccuracies which had not been detected by either earlier participating air crews or the supervising airline inspectors. Again, none of the other crews or anybody who was supposed to be looking at this stuff had noticed this problem. The crew were not monitoring their actual position in relation to the topography adequately, even though a continuous readout of the aircraft's latitude and longitude and distance to run to the next waypoint was continuously available to them. So they just weren't on top of their uh, positioning like they should have been. Hmm. 
The captain initiated a descent to an altitude below both the IMC of 16,000 feet and the VMC of 6,000 feet minimum for the area in a cloud-free area, but in contradiction of the operator's briefing. So this is like what we mentioned earlier. He went below the minimum altitude that he was told to go. Yeah, but everyone did it, it sounds like. Exactly. Everyone had done this in the past. Neither the passengers nor the crew were expecting the collision and all received fatal injuries on impact with the ice. Um, so it just came out of nowhere. Uh, I think the the time between the ground proximity warning going off and the impact was six seconds. So it was it was very quick. Yeah, that's at least they didn't suffer. Uh, and there's a, there's actually since this was a a sightseeing flight, there's actually a lot of film and photos that have survived from this flight. Oh my god, I didn't even think about that. Right, there were people with cameras. And there's you know I've seen videos of. You know, people having a good time on this plane, you know, flying, look out, looking out over the windows and, you know, unaware that they're going to hit a mountain in just a few minutes. Oh, my God. The probable cause of this accident was the decision of the captain to continue the flight at low level toward an area of poor surface and horizon definition when the crew was not certain of their position and subsequent inability to detect the rising terrain which intercepted the aircraft's flight path. So, again, like we said, it was a whiteout, couldn't really see the mountain and... They ended up hitting it. Yeah. Although the accident would have been avoided if the aircraft had not descended below the safety height, it was not inevitable until the aircraft reached 1,500 feet on track to McMurdo and maintained a heading toward grid north. If the aircraft had turned toward true north, even at that late state, and either climbed to the safety altitude or the crew pinpointed their position and headed toward lower terrain, the accident could still have been averted. The pilot probably assumed he would be able to see any obstructions clearly, you know, with a 2,000-foot cloud base and 40 miles of visibility below the clouds. So it's not likely the potential whiteout hazard indicated by the report of horizon and surface definition was appreciated by the crew. So it's like what we said. He had plenty of visibility. He thought he'd be able to see if there was anything in their way, but he was unaware of the whiteout phenomenon. Yeah, man. So the operator claimed that the whole philosophy behind the Air New Zealand Antarctic flights was for crews to avoid a whiteout situation by remaining strictly VMC throughout the sightseeing part of the flight. It is emphasized that the absence of snow showers and visibility in excess of 20 kilometers would not preclude the possibility of whiteout conditions occurring and affecting the crew's judgment of terrain clearance at any altitude. So, of course, there were some recommendations as a result of this flight. There's seven here I'm going to read through. Mm -hmm. The question of the necessity for the carriage of polar survival equipment to be resolved before any further Antarctic flights are authorized. So... Just basically, hey, you need to have some survival gear in case there is an incident and people survive, right? Whether it's a crash or an emergency landing or something. They didn't have any survival gear on board? Like anything? Nothing specialized for that. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. Like, even if they did survive, I mean, they're in the middle of Antarctica. Like how long could you survive in that environment? I mean, it was November, so that's summer down there. But still, summer in Antarctica is bitter cold. Yeah. So we're recording this episode in January, which is, uh, you know, still summer in Antarctica. And currently at McMurdo, uh, it's 5.42 in the morning and it's 29 degrees Fahrenheit there. And 29 degrees Fahrenheit is about negative 1.6 degrees Celsius. So it's below freezing. Yeah. Um, the route qualification briefing for Antarctic flights be reviewed to ensure it is comprehensive and current. So just got to go over that briefing, make sure everything's up to date. No further flight to the Antarctic be approved by the Civil Aviation Division until the operator's route qualification briefing has been reviewed. So no more flights until you review uh, all of the briefings. And who's reviewing them? The Civil Aviation Division. It's basically um, 
the people that oversee uh, aviation. For the world? Oh, no, this is, uh, this is for uh, New Zealand. Okay. Yeah, yeah. They're, they we're talking specifically about New Zealand. Okay. Good question. The co-pilots, flight engineers, and the official commentators attend the route qualification briefings in addition to the pilot in command. That's one thing I didn't actually mention when we were in this episode we were talking about. Mm-hmm. So uh, they, they also had like a commentator who would get on the PA system during this flight and point out to the people what it is that they're looking at. And on this flight in particular, the commentator was supposed to be Sir Edmund Hillary, who was the first person to ever summit Mount Everest. But he couldn't make it, so he had to cancel last minute. And it was one of his other uh, buddies that he used to climb with who was the commentator on this flight. I didn't know they had... I guess it makes sense they'd have commentators. Right. I mean, otherwise, what do you know what you're looking at down there? Yeah. All entries into any operator's computer which stores flight plan information to be independently checked immediately after they've been entered into the computer. Basically, double check your work. No descent below minimum safe altitudes be authorized in the Ross Island area unless the aircraft is under continuous radar surveillance. Which, I mean, makes sense, right? You want to make sure Mm -hmm. that someone knows where the plane is. No commercial passenger carrying flight to be planned to fly over or close to an active volcano. Well, that makes sense. (laughs) It makes sense. The volcano part didn't play into this incident, but it's still, it's a mountain. When you mentioned it, I was like, "Uh uh-oh. But (laughs) yeah, it didn't actually uh, play into it. Okay. It sounds like we're close to the end of the episode, right? Yeah. I'm going to throw a little wrench in here. (laughs) Okay. So everything I just read to you was from... The official accident report, which uh, they refer to as the Chippendale report. It was compiled by New Zealand's chief inspector of air accidents, Ron Chippendale. The problem is that it largely pins blame for this incident on the pilots. Uh-huh. There are people who disagree with that assumption. The citizens of New Zealand were pretty upset, obviously, about this incident. So uh-huh. in response to uh, a public outcry, the New Zealand government announced another commission to inquire into the accident. It was a one-man commission performed by someone named Justice Peter Mahan, or Mahan. I'm going to say Mahan. I'm sorry. I don't know how to say his name exactly. Okay. And Mahan went through everything, and he came out with his own conclusions, which were a little different. Mahan contends that Chippendale didn't really have commercial aviation experience, not with these kinds of planes. So he didn't fully understand everything that went into this incident. Uh, in fact, he uh, Mahan coined a term that's still somewhat used in New Zealand. He accuses airline executives and senior pilots in a conspiracy to whitewash that inquiry and accuse them of, quote, an orchestrated litany of lies. Whoa, that's a big uh, claim. Yeah, that's pretty bad by covering up evidence and lying to investigators. Yeah. Yeah, he said Chippendale had poor grasp of the flying involved in jet airline operation and that Chippendale typically investigated simple light aircraft crashes. And he said that Chippendale's investigation uh, lacked in rigor, which allowed for errors and avoidable gaps in knowledge to appear in reports. So it, it, it's it's somewhat contested. Uh, Mahan puts a lot more of the blame on the whiteout conditions uh, as opposed to uh, just simple pilot error. Okay, on the whiteout thing, and that's and they weren't informed about it, so they didn't even know to be careful for it? I guess right, they, they, they had no idea that such a phenomenon was possible. Which... That would seem like the first thing you'd want to know when flying in Antarctica. Yeah, yeah, you would absolutely want to know that. So, uh, I mean, obviously, there was, and this this took years. You know, it was a couple of years, like like a normal investigation. It was a couple of years for the Chippendale report to come out. People weren't happy about it. So, you know, there's this second report, the Mahan report. And even that, there's some controversy about it. Uh, it's contended that they didn't give Mahan enough time or resources to fully carry out a report. And that they were just kind of trying to sweep it under the rug and make people move on and forget about it. 
So it's very, very contentious as to where the blame lies exactly. And there's two competing accident reports, uh, both commissioned by New Zealand about this, uh, this incident. Okay. So this crash ranks as one of New Zealand's all-time deadliest disasters and is the number one air disaster for New Zealand. Uh, and at the time of the accident, it was the fourth deadliest air crash of all time. Damn. Almost all of the aircraft's wreckage still lies where it came to rest on the slopes of Mount Erebus, as both its remote location and the weather conditions can hamper any further recovery operations. During cold periods, the wreckage is buried under a layer of snow and ice, and during warm periods when the snow recedes, it's visible uh, from the air. Following this incident, all charter flights to Antarctica from New Zealand ceased and were not resumed until 2013. In 2009, Air New Zealand CEO Rob Fife apologized to all those affected who did not receive appropriate support and compensation from the company following the incident and unveiled a commemorative sculpture at its headquarters. And on November 28, 2019, which was the 40th anniversary of the disaster, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, along with the national government, issued a formal apology to the families of the victims. Uh, and there's a cross that was erected on the mountain above Scott Base to commemorate the accident. If you remember, Scott Base was the other base further to the west. Okay. The memorial for the 16 passengers who were unidentifiable and the 28 whose bodies were never found is at the Waikumiti Cemetery in Glen Eden, Auckland. The passengers who were unidentifiable? Like, they know who was on the plane. I don't want to get too gruesome about it, but when you have a plane crash at that velocity... Um, okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it can be difficult to identify. They knew everyone that was on the plane and who died. It was just they didn't know right. exactly where. They just have remains that they may not be able to identify. And beside that memorial in Auckland is a Japanese cherry tree planted as a memorial to the 24 Japanese passengers who died on board that flight. And a memorial to the crew members of Flight 901 is located adjacent to Auckland Airport on Tom Pierce Drive at the eastern end of the airport zone. Uh, so that's it. That's Air New Zealand Flight 901. Really a an entirely avoidable incident. It's it's a huge tragedy. And it, it boils down to, in the end, in my opinion, it boils down to the flight plan being changed and the mm -hmm. whiteout conditions happening. So you you your analysis is you would put blame more on the administration and and the company rather than the pilots. Yeah, I don't. I mean, these pilots had plenty of experience. I think, like I said, it was their first time. You know, they didn't know about whiteout conditions. Someone should have alerted them to that. I, I think that they were not given all the information they should have had, and some of the information they received, like their flight plan, was incorrect, and they didn't know it. No one told them. Uh, yeah. I think that they were not given the information that they needed for this flight. And I think uh, the Mahan inquiry was a lot more correct about it than uh, the Chippendale report. And so when did they start doing commercial flights to Antarctica again? Uh, out of New Zealand, they started in 2013. So it is something that does exist. I know I've, I've seen those flights advertised before. So it, it, is, it is happening again, you know, but now we have a lot more technology uh, in planes so I think it's it's a lot safer now. And plus, in yeah. general, aviation is a lot safer now than it used to be. Would you want to do it? I would, actually. I, I would like to do that. Uh, I, I've, I've looked at those uh, flights before. You know, I've flown down yeah. to uh, um, Australia and New Zealand a few times in the past. And when I've been down there, I've always thought, like, man, that would be really cool to fly out and see Antarctica. I think it would, it would be really neat. Because it's, I mean, imagine how difficult it is to see. Yeah, that's an easier way than, like, trying to actually land there just to... <laughs> To fly over it. How else do you see Antarctica? Do you have to become a scientist and then get stationed out there <laughs> yeah. for a year? Like, I don't know any other way to do it. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks for listening, everybody. As always, uh, please check out our social media at Black Box Down Pod. We'll have some uh, some supplemental uh, photos and we'll put the flight plan out there so you can see it. Any of the videos from the uh, the tourists 
Uh, I'll, like I'll, the- I'll see if I can find some. You know, obviously there's nothing grisly about those. It's just people walking around and, and enjoying themselves on a plane. But I'll see yeah. if I'll see if I can find any. I've seen it, um I've seen that in some documentaries about this incident. I don't I don't think I've ever I've never looked for them online, so I don't know if they, they exist. But I'll see I'll I'll poke around, I'll see what I can find. Oh, and if you want to see that uh, flight sim vacation video that I mentioned, we'll have a link for that in the show notes. Uh, or just search we're going on vacation in flight simulator RT Life on YouTube or roosteep.com. Yeah, we'll put a link to that. All right, thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye.